Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 384. Today is Sunday, the 16th of August, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. First, I'd like to give a shout out and thanks to Clarice Gomez for putting up a five-star review of the show. Please consider to drop in your rating and review and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. This week's interview is with Sharma Haider. Sharma is CEO of Zen Media. She's two times best-selling author, keynote speaker, a media correspondent for Forbes and Inc., and has been rated four times as LinkedIn's top voice in marketing. In this conversation with Sharma, you'll learn about how to optimize your digital marketing approach and resources, how to allow for your personality as an executive, how best to drive your brand share voice, and how to navigate political issues. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please now enjoy the show. So Sharma Haider, how wonderful to have you on the show. You have really set a path and come across you regularly. And I really said, I need to have Sharma on my show. You, you've really mastered the art of having a beautiful and powerful, influential presence online. In your own words, how do you like to describe yourself? Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for the kind words and for the invitation to be here and, and share a little bit of the journey, I suppose. You know, when I think about what I do, I feel like the, the words that come to mind are, I, I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so a big chunk of my life in, in, the, in my past was professionally defined. I find that it now blends more and more with the personal as well. So, you know, I, I wear personal hats like mom and wife and, <laughs> and, and daughter. And, you know, these, these are hats I greatly enjoy. And then there's a, a myriad of, of professional hats, which include, you know, founder and CEO of Zen Media, a marketing and PR firm, author. I love writing, keynote speaker, which of course in pandemic days, everything's gone remote. And, yeah. and I do a lot of stuff for the media. It's funny, I, I walk that line as a media correspondent too. So, you know, I, I feel like I, everything that I do though, the overarching themes tends to be, you know, helping people and, and organizations succeed in the digital age. And I would say that's, that's the umbrella where everything sort of falls. So lots of things in there, Sharma. And I want to pick off the first thing, which is so important to me and certainly something I've been writing about and talking about a lot, which is merging the personal with the professional. To what extent do you think that's part of your success? Well, I think as a woman, it's definitely a huge part of, you know, you know, I, the, I thought I was a good productive multitasker and I don't mean multitasker as doing, you know, four things at once, but the ability to get a lot done in a given day, you know, and uh, I thought this before I became a mom and then I realized, boy, I really had no idea how much I wasn't living up to my potential <laughs> because then all of a sudden you're like, okay. Really, I could get those 10 things done within half the time, right? Because that's all I have allotted now. <laughs> so I do think that you discover quite a bit about yourself in, in that regard. And what about your public personality? To the extent that there's personal in personality, 
To what right. extent do you feel that you are a complete Shama Hider online as opposed to a professional CEO, seller, author, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a line that, I, and it's a great question. Um, I try to balance that very strategically and consciously, both from a perspective of what does my audience want to know, right? When someone follows me on Twitter or connects with me on LinkedIn, I mean, what's, you know, what's my expertise? What are they, what are they looking for? And, and of course that is, you know, it is business, it is marketing. I guess there is some level of interest in my personal life if you just look at Google searches, but I tend to think a lot about that in terms of, you know, how do I balance how much I put out there about my personal life and, you know, being a mom and, and, you know, how pictures of my son, even pictures of my family. And, and I try to balance that with what do people want? You know, what are they curious about with being respectful, of course, of my family, being respectful of people who did not necessarily sign up for a, a public persona or life. And I think about what do I want to stand for? As in, I often tell, you know, I, I often tell my team this and, and my husband as well, it's much harder to be what you can't see. So I feel like every time I do share the being a mom, be having a family, you know, being a woman of color, being young, I, every time I do highlight, highlight those things, I feel like someone out there can look at that and say, oh my God, me too. I didn't know this was possible, right? I mean, growing up, I never saw anyone like me run a company. I never really saw anyone look like me on TV that wasn't, you know, playing a Kardashian or wasn't, <laughs> you know, you just don't, don't see that. And so I feel a certain level of responsibility to an, a global audience, you know, many who I've never met to be able to be that. And occasionally I'll get that email on Instagram from, you know, a 19 year old young lady who says, Oh my God, I, I love your stuff. I follow it. I'm so, you know, so thrilled to have discovered this and I really want this as a career or, you know, you're, I really look up to you. And, and I, I enjoy that because not from a place of like an, an ego perspective, which of course it's nice, right? But more from a place that I feel like, yes, what I'm doing is working because part of my goal is to inspire. It is to have people look and say, okay, wow, if she can do that, I can do that. I've observed that type of a trait of allowing for the personal sphere in the professional to be uh, much more engaging and naturally more authentic to the extent that you allow at least a portion of it into the public sphere. Obviously, we're not right. talking about dirty laundry, but <laughs> up to that point. And so my question then becomes, when you're working with your clients at Zen Media, what is your line with regard to that. And I want to get into the particular topic of allowing personal opinions about politics, for example. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, I give them much of the same advice as I follow myself, which is you look at your audience, how many people's audiences really, and this is again, differs based on you know who you serve. At Zen Media, our clients are so diverse. I mean, we have clients all over the political spectrum. And I try to remind them that they have customers all over the political spectrum. So I think it is a fine line, especially with everything happening in the U.S. right now, where, you know, where I do think for brands, while taking a stance is important, not alienating 
you know, uh, your audience is also important. So I think, you know, it takes, of course, in the world of communications and PR, it takes a certain level of finesse. It takes a certain level of uh, savvy to sort of navigate these waters. I so agree. And I think that the issue becomes whether you're prepared to stand for something or feel that you need to water down everything to please everybody. Yeah. And, you know, again, so much of it depends on your audience, what you're trying to do, your leadership. I mean, some clients are naturally more comfortable. You know, the leadership is more comfortable taking a stance than others. And I feel like my job and our job is as an agency and professionals is to help navigate that based on their constraints and help encourage where it makes sense to stretch a little bit. But again, be very respectful of what it is that they they believe in and, and what their stance is. I think it, it, you can't tell people how to feel or, or what to what to think. I think you could just use that. And you know, you look at the end goal, right? When people come to us, it's usually because they want more leads, sales, they want, you know, mm -hmm. to increase share of voice. And so these are the kind of challenges we solve. So we look at this is part of the bigger picture, not necessarily as a standalone. And when you have those conversations, Shama, because I mean, I, obviously I, I have similar types of conversations, but I don't, I certainly don't get into the nitty gritties of digital marketing. I tend to sort of want to push in on things like what is their overall strategy? And I, I just wonder to what extent when someone says, Hey, listen, Shama, I need this campaign. I need to break through. I need to have huge following, whatever the, the issues that mm -hmm. one typically has. Well, you say, well, I bring my personality into the flavor. That's how I've got to where I've got to. The conversation, the pushback, the challenge with corporate organizations is I'm just a stiff. I'm a person running a company. I'm the CEO. I'm, I'm not the individual behind the CEO. I don't want that part out of me. And as a company, as a brand, so often, well, they kind of put up a wall that doesn't allow them to express what others might consider to be more authentic, more accessible. Yeah, it's, it's such a fine line. And what I find is most important is to focus on the value that you give your audience, right? The thing is, everyone has a brand today. The only question is, is it by default or by design? So even if a CEO feels like, oh, I don't really like engaging, well, that, that is your brand. People know that. <laughs> People mm -hmm. know that you aren't in the limelight or you are. And that means you, you know, in some ways, you give up a, a share of voice to them some degree. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that you still can't have a valuable online presence for your company or even yourself, depending on how strategic you get. And, you know, for example, the use of influencers, right? Very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many brands that, that leverage that. I mean, I've been, again, on both sides where we've engaged influencers for clients, both B2C and B2B. Sometimes in B2B, it can be even more powerful than B2C. And, and I've been an influencer. I've done influencer engagements with you know microsoft Verizon, where they say you have this audience can you you know can you curate this can you create this content and then we will distribute it so there's lots of ways to provide but i think it comes down to this is what does your audience find valuable you know they your audience may not care about seeing you know the ceo with feeding their four kids breakfast at the table and you have may not have no interest in sharing that no problem you know what do they care about so I do think, again, I, we, sometimes there's this misconception that everything needs to be out on, you know, out in the open. Everything needs to be public. And if you're not being completely real, you're missing out. And I, I think quite the contrary. I, I, you know, not that authenticity doesn't play a, a role, but 
it's what is of interest, right, to that audience. So just your audience listening right now is tuning in for a specific certain, you know, layer of my life or my expertise. They're not interested in the whole life story, uh, right? So just like my audience, yes, I could tweet, you know, what I do every day and, and what it takes to balance a family and business and so forth. But, and that might be about five, 10% of what I share, mm-hmm. but the majority of what I share is how do you, you know, how do you gain virality? How do you manufacture these moments or take advantage of these moments that are given to you? How do you, you know, how do you get you know, visibility and, and attract attention? How do you grow your brand? I would say 90% of my content stays in that realm. You know, people like to also have a sense of what they can expect and they like to see that then fulfilled. You know, there's a lot of people I follow where I don't really care about their personal lives. Mm-hmm. I don't see that in a mean way. I see that in a very genuine, I'm more interested in what they're doing professionally than personally. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, you, you see the value in just that and you don't need more. Absolutely. My thought though goes to the types of sensitive topics that you mentioned before when we were talking at the beginning about what do you stand for? And at some level, if you don't say something, the silence can be taken as acquiescence for the other side, if you will, in this politically charged environment. And and I'm, I'm wondering how you guide your clients on that topic you know i i think you have to you have to be very sensitive to to the again to both the audience and the leadership and everyone's got a different uh level i do believe it's important to stand for something i don't think it's as important to be as provocative as people seem to think right, right. so this the sense of well, if you're not taking the strongest, you know, your actions speak louder than your words. We have clients right now, for example, that have been, you know, that, that haven't been talking as much about diversity. And the reason is because if you look at their portfolios and their boards and stuff, they're already very diverse. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not, they are, they've been walking the talk. Yeah. <laughs> they already have programs to support others, you know, they don't feel compelled to put out a statement because they feel like, isn't this understood? We're in, you know, 2020, like our board is half women. There, we have plenty of people of color. We have a great system in place. To, so I think part of this is also, you know, again, being true to your, your, your roots and action speaking louder than words. I think that is true authenticity. So, you know, being able to then, of course, navigate those things and being honest and upfront and upright. But I don't think that there's necessarily this need to jump on every, you know, we call it virtual signaling, right? There's no need yeah. for virtue signaling to say, oh yeah, we're on board. I mean, it's, it's enough to be able to live it and to consistently live it and share it. So this is the other thing is when you come out and you say, oh yes, like you, you saw this with so many companies, uh, Pinterest, for example, when they came out and said, oh yes, Black Lives Matter and you know, we, we care about our, you know, our, our employees that are minorities that are, that are black. We support that. And they had employees who came out and said that that wasn't my experience at all. Right. They felt very, that they did, that they had felt bullied and they didn't feel. And so then you have a case where it's really, boy, you know, you don't want to go preaching something that you weren't really doing to begin with. And I say this about marketing as well. You know, it amplifies what exists. You can hear my little guy over there. You know, it amplifies what exists. You know, if you have a good product and you have great marketing, 
it'll be perceived as a great product by the marketplace. If you have something that's average or poor, all the marketing in the world will just amplify those defects. I enjoyed your book. Um, it's called Momentum, How to Propel Your Marketing and Transform Your Brand in the Digital Age. And uh, several elements uh, jumped out at me. And, and in speaking on this particular topic, this rabbit hole, if you will, you, you refer to your hypothesis about what was social media or specifically with your thesis on Twitter. And you write, I quote, my incorrect hypothesis was that people wanted to connect to each other. But my research revealed that this was only the secondary reason. The primary reason was to showcase their own identity. So in the, yes. in, when you're <laughs> discussing with a brand, the notion of showing your identity, because I'm a brand guy. I'm thinking, you know, I got a great product, of course, and I've got a great campaign. Look, you know, I used to work for L'Oreal, so lovely made up, not to say retouched girls selling beautiful hair, whatever it is. This is a, an identity, but it's certainly not necessarily a real identity or certainly can appear to be superficial for others. How do you get into the nitty gritty and, and what kind of advice do you provide to companies to expose a more interesting identity, one that allows for a, a higher level of engagement, a, a, a more robust, believable presence online? I think it stems from a great question. I think it stems from a deeper understanding of your audience, not what you think, but what the audience actually wants, right? For example, I was working with, I was talking to a company right here that does these snacks, right? Like a, a certain type of vegetable chip, healthy vegetable chips, not potato. <laughs> so they, they do these green chips. And the point was that they were looking at these chips and saying, you know, we, they can appeal to so many people. They can appeal to vegans. They can appeal to uh, parents who want healthy snacks for the kids. They can appeal to, you know, the, the diabetic community because they're, they're sugar free. And it's like, yes, they can appeal to all these. And who's the core audience? Like who can we go after first, right? Where that creates the tipping point for, for everything else. So I think the it's funny because you know you're a branding guy so you'll understand this the brand used to be all about what do we say about our what do we say about ours you know what what does our brand stand for and the question you really should be asking is what does doing business with us allow our customers to say about their brand right when you shop with apple it says something when you shop at certain you know when you you know when you are a patron of your local cupcakery or your local restaurant you support that it says something so it, i think it really does come down to that what does what does doing business with you allow your customers to say about themselves or you know one of the brands we work with is galia lahav they do these gorgeous bridal um gowns and and i wore it myself for for my wedding and, you know, when, when people wear that, celebs wear that, it's a very pop, you know, it's, it's a high-end couture line. And it's not just about the, the dress. It is about the brand. It is about, oh, you know, that dress. Like you said, you were with L'Oreal, right? So when people shop certain brands, more and more brands need to think about, well, what is it? What is it about the consumer identity that really clicks here? And you said this need for data just there's one more piece of, of this, which I, I just wanted to share, which is I, I was sad and that it's not about connecting with one another. Cause I feel that on a meta level, Shama, that the world is missing connection and that the ability for conversation and connection, and I'm not talking because of a lockdown pandemic, much more 
endemically in our society an issue is we are losing conversation and going into silos and not being able to converse and connect with a more broad audience. So that was, that was why I, I really tagged into that particular piece. You, yeah. You, yeah, I'm going to comment that if you wish. No, no, I, I think, I, you know, I absolutely. And I think it's all about that balance between what, what you're trying to achieve and then what is going to resonate with your audience. And that's going to look a little bit different for every brand. In order to get this data from your audience, so we've established that you really need to know your audience, what are they looking for? You need to have data. And, and you, of course, you talk a lot about trust and, and the importance of having that data. But the issue somehow is gaining that trust to get the good data, the one that says, oh, click here, you know, click here if you're willing to share your data, click here if you're willing to get personalized ads. And, and how do you articulate or you help companies gain more trust with their audience? You know, trust is gained through multiple small things. People think trust is gained through sort of you know, these big grand gestures, but really the brands that are very trusted are the brands that are built trust with small little things over time. And you even look at Amazon, right? In some ways, there's a lot of mistrust around that brand, and yet consumers continue to flock there because they feel safe. Right. They feel like, hey, if something doesn't work out, I can return it. I, you know, even though their customer service isn't top notch, so to speak, but uh, they feel like, you know, it's it's that perception. So I think that's really interesting, too, is, is trust isn't just the reality. It's the perception. And I think so many brands sometimes do all these things. I talk to brands all the time that say, you know, we've been in business for 30, 40 years. You know, our products are better than our competitors or, you know, we're the best. Yet our competitor gets you know, the business or they win. And I say, you know what, because it doesn't matter who's the best. It only matters who's perceived as the best. And it's very important that even when you're doing things that are building trust, that you showcase that, that you share with your customers, how they're, you know, how you're keeping their data safe, how you're, and then you follow through on that. And I think sometimes that means apologizing and saying, Hey, listen, you know, we messed up. We apologize. Here's how we're going to fix it. Brands don't trust, you know, consumers don't trust perfection. It seems it's not something we buy. We don't feel like that exists, especially when you look at millennials and Gen Z. I think what you do see is people respect the ability to take responsibility, the ability to say, I'm sorry, the ability to be able to, to fix a mistake, to rectify something. I think these are the things you get really judged on. Actions. Another quote in your book, Shama, that just, <laughs> oh God, I had myself rolling and maybe worrying. You, you wrote, I quote, what does digital marketing mean to you? Posting on Facebook and Twitter a few times a week, emailing a list of subscribers, cranking out blog posts every few days, tweaking your website to make it mobile responsive. My God, I, each one of these, I was like, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> And, and it doesn't have to be that way. How would you uh, frame the strategic approach to digital marketing so you don't have to get just caught down this rabbit hole or, or this hamster race? Yeah, well, very simply, it starts with keeping the big picture in mind, right? And then realizing there's multiple ways to reach that same goal. I mean, look at what's happening right now with trade shows, especially in the U.S., 
where you see where you see so many companies that used to go to trade shows regularly, right? And they used to attend trade shows and they've been canceled in the US and also you know many people have experienced sort of the global global cancellations and so forth. Mm-hmm. And when you know I've talked to many of these companies and they say, "Oh no, Shamar, our trade show's been canceled. What are we going to do?" And and I say, "Okay, well what what was the goal of the trade show? Like what what were we trying to achieve there anyways?" And then they say, "Well, I I don't we've been doing it for years." <laughs> and it's like, "Okay, but what was the goal?" And I think so often you lose sight of that, you know, like, oh, I've been sending a newsletter out every, every week for what, what's the goal, right? Well, I've been, oh, I've been, you know, we've been, we've been, we, we do social media, but for what? So I think it's so, and I think that the pandemic in so many ways has given people and brands the opportunity to pause and say, hmm, why are we doing this? Great opportunity for brands, by the way, because we've never seen people switch brands like we have now. I mean, if there was ever a chance to steal market share from a competitor, it's hands down now because people are reassessing things they've never reassessed. Look at Starbucks that said, you know, we're going to close down, what, 1,200 stores and just stick to drive through. And they've said, because they see the, you know, they see the proof in the, in the pudding. They see that, you know, customers stop and go get my Starbucks. Like, I'm happy with my coffee at home. Or I'm happy, you know, switching the habit finally for just tea, whatever it is. And so there, it's very rare to have these sort of moments in time where you have so many people rethinking the things they think about. And a great time for brands also to rethink about these marketing activities that they might engage in, sometimes meaninglessly or you know, at best haphazardly. So they do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but there's no strategy. There's no cohesion. There's nothing, you know, there, there's nothing that ties it all together. Yeah. Back, big, back to the big question of strategy. One of the things you mentioned in the book, of course, is the shift in event marketing as well. So not just conferences and the trade shows like South by Southwest and so that, but event marketing has so changed and so switching quickly and easily, if you will, to digital. Although it's certainly not the same and it takes a different skill set in order to accomplish it. And so you do need to check in on who you have on your team, what expertises you need to bring in, correct? Absolutely. And I think it's something you need to do on a regular basis. And that's the thing. Most people get stuck in their status quo. And they don't, you know, they, they don't look at all the missed opportunities. And sometimes it's given to you, you know, we, sometimes you kind of land into it. It, it, it. Sometimes that moment that we call it is external. You know, it may be that you got caught in the jujitsu your way into making it positive. You okay? Yes, I, I am okay. If you count that I am being harassed by a giant puppy. Oh, and dear. when I say giant, when I say giant, I mean giant. We have we have a giant schnauzer puppy, oh, wow. so he's <laughs> he's a he's a hundred pounds and four months old. And yes, All right. yes, he's a very very big puppy. So I want to get into one last area, Sean, which is just more, let's say, strategic thinking about the different social media. Obviously, you have a, a very strong presence online, and uh, I'm specifically mostly following you on Twitter. 
but you're not just on Twitter, of course, but what your thoughts were with regard to their um, results at the end of June, the second quarter, they had revenues down nearly 20% and, and monetizable users up 34%. How does that change things or what's your reading of that type of a, a result? You know, I, it's interesting. Even with Facebook, you see a lot of big brands. And this happens whenever there's something challenging. What you find is big brands, and I, and I hope we've learned from this and during the last great recession that we had in the U.S., big brands often pull back. They get scared. They, you know, it's all of a sudden it becomes about maintaining market share and not realizing that there is no maintaining. You're either only winning or losing it by the mm. minute. Yeah. <laughs> and what you find is small businesses, medium enterprises, are get more creative. They look at a challenge and they say, all right, let's, let's do this. You know, when I, Minter, when I started social media, like my, my world, you know, my, my career, my profession, people didn't know what Twitter was. They didn't know what social media was. It was completely brand new. My first clients were small, medium-sized businesses, businesses that said, if this gets customers in the door, we'll try it. But huge companies, huge corporations didn't, didn't even, you know, they felt like it was a fad. They didn't, it was just like the internet was supposed to be a fad. <laughs> and of course, the, a lot of other things have been going on in terms of people not wishing to use Facebook for other ethical reasons. Yes, but you have to realize that, you know, three-fourths of Facebook's advertisers are small, medium-sized businesses because there's such great ROI in Facebook advertising. They can't compete with the big guys for television ads. So even though you've got people who are pulling from advertising, it's not the end of the world because people don't realize that the majority of the advertisers are not enterprise companies. Or well, presumably the prices have gone rocketing down if the big... Also the big... that, yeah, but even, even generally, most of the advertisers for Facebook have been small, medium-sized businesses. That's where they make the majority of their revenue. Um, and I apologize. I don't know if, you, if the audience and you can hear the hacking sound in the back. I should have mentioned my puppy has pneumonia, which is why he's being allowed to be a little brat and not <laughs> that's so cute but last question just with regard to social media in terms of targeting and personalization facebook twitter linkedin instagram part of facebook which of these i mean obviously it depends where your audience is but do you feel like one of them has got the game down pat and the others are still playing catch up or it's they're all much of a muchness and you just need to know where your audience is where your audience is. I will say I'm quite impressed by LinkedIn over the years, especially in these last two years, because I feel like they've done such a great job evolving, you know, and I've, I've long predicted, and I guess I'll leave the audience with this prediction. I do believe with all these disruptions, and I've said this even before, I mean, I've been making this prediction for five years now, I believe LinkedIn will offer their own university. I know they have courses, but I believe LinkedIn has the power to compete with Harvard and Yale and and Cambridge and, you know, and Oxford and, and UT Austin, sure. You know, and they'll compete with these by offering because they'll have a 100% placement rate. Because it's very easy for them to work with the companies that are already, you know, advertising for jobs there, work with them to create a curriculum that gets them the perfect fit. I mean, someone graduates with the exact skill set you need for them to have in that job, right? And that's going to be very attractive to a new breed of students. Indeed. Sharma. Brilliant. Well, so, and the name of your schnauzer, how was it? What's... Georgie. Georgie. Well, hi yes. to Georgie. How can uh, people follow you, connect, obviously get your books? What's the best way? Zenmedia.com is where all our information can be found. And of course, you know, pick your poison if you just 
Google my name, you'll find all the different social platforms that I'm on. I'm more than happy to connect. And if you see you, you know, you heard me on this podcast and that will put you top of the list. Oh, <laughs> you're so kind. Shama, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look forward to staying in touch with you. Congratulations on the fourth edition of your Zen Media's book and uh, continuing to roll. It's been a pleasure and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.